Well, I'm excited for this message as we continue in this idea of tough as nails. That the reason why we can go into life and we can have so much courage and we can have so much uh, excitement about what comes ahead isn't necessarily because life is easy, but that even when it hurts, even in these difficult moments, we can stand on the nails of Christ and we can have that strength in our lives. You see, I'm going to tell you a kind of a, a once upon a time story. Once upon a time, there was no constitution, there was no bill of rights, there was no religious liberty, there was no political parties. All there was once upon a time over much of the world was Rome. That Rome was this empire that stretched to so much of the known world. And as Rome stretched seemingly unending from one end of the world to the other, all the way from the Himalayan mountains, all the way out to Gibraltar, to what they thought was the known world, that during that time, Rome was this authority that just governed all over. And see, Jesus, who came during this time, Rome was a republic that transitioned into an empire under Caesar Augustus. He reigned during the birth of his Jewish boy, whose renown would eventually eclipse all of the empires of Rome. Yes, we know their names in history, but no one today is, is waving a Roman flag or, or following a Roman leadership. But yet today we have millions, if not billions of people following, giving their lives for the name of Jesus. As Jesus stood against the injustice of the empire, the hypocrisy of the religious system that he was born into. He introduced these ideas of God as our father. In fact, it says in part of scripture, he says, Abba, Father. He's literally praying to God using the Hebrew word for daddy. This closeness of a relationship that we can have with God. He said, love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Love is going to be the underlying foundation of this new kingdom. He said, forgive everybody and turn the other cheek. He never wrote a word. He never traveled further than he could walk. He taught a way of thinking, believing, and even behaving that was completely foreign, completely different, and to many, completely impractical. Once upon a time, he was betrayed by a friend, condemned by the temple, crucified by that empire, worshipped throughout the world, and he simply said, come and follow me. Once upon a time, Christians gathered after Jesus had been crucified and resurrected. And they didn't meet on the traditional Sabbath, but they met on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. They would sing a song. They would share a story of what God was doing, how the Holy Spirit was working. Perhaps they would read a letter that was written by Paul or by another leader of the church that was sent to them. They would renew their vow to live without discipline, or live above reproach. There was the rich, the poor, the slaves, the masters, the men, the women, the Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, the soldiers, the, the jailers, the merchants, and even the tax collectors were welcomed in their midst. They found something in common after being told their entire lives that the Jewish people had to be separate from everybody else. They found out that just like everybody else, they were sinners in need of a savior. They believed that God was spirit, not stone. That everybody had intrin intrinsic assigned value, which we say here at Rock Harbor means you're made on purpose and for purpose. 
The need for animal sacrifice they believed was no longer going to ever be necessary again anywhere on earth because the final sacrifice had been made through Jesus Christ who sat on the right hand of the Father. They had been also betrayed by friends. They also had been condemned by the temple. They also would be persecuted for hundreds of years by the empire. But their influence continued to spread like wildfire throughout the land. Someday, our generation is going to be asked, what is our once upon a story? You see, this isn't a fairy tale because it doesn't end with they lived happily ever after some of the times. What is our story going to be? What is our story of the church? And I really am asking specifically, what is going to be the story of the Christian church of America? When people look back at the early 21st century and they say, what were they doing with the saints that they stood on? All the people who gave their lives so that we could have a copy of the Bible, so the church could remain, so that we could have freedoms. Those who died fighting for a country that allowed for this unprecedented freedom of religion. What is that church going to look like? What are they going to stand for? So we're going to look at not a once upon a time story, but a slice of narrative of our history. It's recorded in Acts chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles or you've got something that can get the Bible on it, look at Acts chapter 4 with me. It reminds me that so many times we look at Scripture and we make it feel like it's a once upon a time story. But if any of the books of the Bible is true, this one is definitely true. Acts is really a historical narrative. It's Luke, a surgeon who went and did the investigation of the first-hand accounts of what happened in these early times. So I want to look at these historical events that happened right after the resurrection. There's no organization really to the church, and they are definitely disturbing the peace of the temple. And Jesus had said this to them in Acts chapter 1. While he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days I will be baptized, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And let me refresh your memory. On the day of Pentecost, this moment came, this phenomenal moment in history, where physically we hear the Holy Spirit move into a place. And we see just a, a rumbling. The entire city of Jerusalem heard this rumbling, this earthquake that was happening around this upper room. But 120 followers had cloved tongues of fire seen above their heads. And Jesus said on this, he would build his church. It all started on that day, that day of Pentecost. That's the birth of the church. You say, when did the church begin? It began in that moment because Jesus told them, you guys can't do the task that's going to be asked before you without the power of the Holy Spirit. If you don't have my spirit in you, you're not going to be able to do this. So just, just wait. Just wait. And I'll send you the helper that you need. We know today that the church cannot exist without the Holy Spirit. That's a foundation for Rock Harbor. It's our third affirmation. It's on the back of your bulletin if you want to see. A conscience dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you our teaching series this summer is going to be called A Summer Playlist. We're going to look at the songs of songs, songs, nope, that would be a very different uh, sermon, songs of the Psalms, um, so that we can focus on how the Holy Spirit is moving through us. And it's going to come together with our church on a Friday night worship night. 
for a worship night focused on the conscious dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Because I know for a fact that we are by no means different than the early church. That we cannot go any further as a church without the Holy Spirit indwelling in us as a church. Well, the fire of those tongues was long gone. They were no longer walking around with tongues of fire above their head. But what we're going to see in this beautiful passage of Scripture is that the fire in their hearts, the fire in their soul was by no means diminished. That they were full of the fire of the Holy Spirit and the passion. And Peter just starts preaching the resurrection of Jesus. He goes out and says that 3,000 people embraced Jesus' Messiah in that very first sermon. There was a lot of energy in the city. Many of the guests in Jerusalem for the festival of the Pentecost, so the population was high. And they heard the person of Peter was preaching about the one who they had crucified. And they said, I thought that we had laid this to rest. I literally thought we had put this in the grave. And this story was just growing and growing as people heard about Jesus. And so now you can join me in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So what's happening here is in the temple, you've got Solomon's uh, court, and in that area, it's about 38 acres. So we're on about four acres here. So we're talking a huge amount of space. So they were able to find their space that they could come and that they could uh, be, and they began to preach in this area inside Solomon's temple, but outside of the area that only those that were part of the Jewish faith that were from Jewish ancestry could stand inside. So they're out here in Solomon's court where people were welcomed in. And they're preaching the good news of Jesus. They're preaching that Jesus Christ has resurrected from the dead, and that we can follow him. He's proved that he is the Messiah, and they continue to see people respond to that message. Well, the leaders of the temple, they're very upset about this, and so the exact same people that arrested Jesus are coming now to arrest Peter. The gospel has always disturbed people because it always disturbs the status quo, and that's exactly what Peter was doing. Now, the word greatly disturbed here in our verse, uh, it actually means that they were pained, that they were pained, that it hurt them to hear this. And in some ways, you want to give them some credit because perhaps in their heart, they thought they were doing what was right. They were protecting their faith. So the Sadducees, um, we're told, are, are the ones that are sitting out here to arrest Peter and his friend. And the life of Christ, the Sadducees were kind of the primary enemy of Christ. Uh, was, the, was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the primary enemy of Christ. Now that Jesus has risen, we see kind of a, a shift here. The enemy of the Christians, the enemy of the early church, is going to shift from being the Pharisees to being the Sadducees. The Sadducees, you kind of need to know why they're so kind of ticked off because of this. It was because they were preaching the resurrection from the dead. Because they were preaching that specifically is why they were so upset with Peter in the early church. The Sadducees were the, the ruling class of the Jews. They were the aristocrats. They were the political leaders. The Pharisees are more the um, religious leaders, and the Sadducees are more the political leaders of the nation of Israel, even under 
Roman command. So they loved the status quo because the Romans enforced their leadership as being in charge politically of the nation. And we know that specifically because of who's in place and how they served. So they were the ones that were assigning these leaders. Now in the Old Testament, it would say that they would come from a house of Aaron and they would have a lifetime appointment. But we see in scripture that the Roman Empire would put people in every five to seven years to make sure that they knew who was really in control. It's not your biblical text. It's not your God, but Rome is the one that's in control. So the Pharisees, they're the theological ones. They're the ones that believe in angels. They believe in life after death. They believe um, in the spirit of God. They believe in the resurrection of dead and miracles, but yet they were very legalistic. The Sadducees, they don't believe in angels. They don't believe in miracles. They did not believe in the spirit world. They did not believe that the resurrection from the dead was possible. So the Sadducees become the foremost enemies of the early church, who their primary teaching was not the uh, parables of Jesus. It was not the teachings of Jesus as much as they would preach the resurrection of Jesus, trying to prove the Messiah in Jesus Christ. So the Sadducees, they had no hope for life after death. And so, yes, the very bad uh, seminary joke is they were sad, you see, because they had no belief in life or the spirit world. Let's continue in verse 3. They, being the Sadducees, seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. And if you recognize the language there, it just recorded the men. So there was probably many, many more. But they had their enemies. They had their enemies. Many who heard the word of God believed. But they had their enemies. And I understand as we, as we share this truth and we looked at this, that many reject the good news of Jesus. Uh, in fact, Pastor Rick shared about that this morning that he learned early on in his call to ministry in Isaiah 6, that he was called to share the good news of Jesus. But the person who hears it, that's on God. So here they are in the beginning. They're sharing the good news of Jesus, and many believe, but some don't. We continue in Acts 4, verse 5. The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Uh, Anus, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest family. The whole high priest were essentially family. In fact, Anus and Caiaphas are father and son. And the Romans kind of just changed them in order. But if we actually look in the text, dad's always in charge. Regardless of who the Romans say is in charge, dad's the one that's always in charge. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them by what power or what name do you do this? Now, this is a completely loaded question because in their scripture, in the Old Testament, they were commanded when anybody comes in and does something notable like a miracle, a sign, or a wonder, ask that person whose name they do it in. If they say anything but God, kill them. Like that's what the Old Testament says. Go read the Levitical laws. If someone does a miracle, we're not questioning if they can do a miracle. But if they do a miracle, ask them by whose name. 
So this is like literally, we say locked and loaded. Well, they were probably like rocked and loaded, right? They had rocks in their hands. They're asking the question, and they're literally ready on the spot to stone them, kill them. Or perhaps they were going to go, you know, in front of Pontius Pilate and say, hey, I know we crucified Jesus, but if we can just do like two more of these, I'm pretty sure we can just get this whole following of Jesus and we can just put it to rest for good. So, so Peter and John understood the, the difficulty that they were in. So here they are. They say, by what name are you doing this? They're just waiting for them to say what? The Sunday school answer of Jesus. They're waiting for that answer. And they're waiting for this. And they're understanding that in this moment, their lives are actually at risk. And they wait for this moment. And it says, then Peter, filled with what? Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's what I was referring to earlier. I truly believe that if Peter had started this ministry on his own, he had started this ministry without the power of the Holy Spirit, his answer would have gotten him killed, would have gotten perhaps all the disciples killed, and in that moment, the Christian faith could have been killed off. But he waited for the Holy Spirit to come because he needed that power in this moment. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and I'm going to slow this down. I want us just to, to bring this in and understand. Peter was outside the court on the night that Jesus was brought to court and these exact same people. So this exact same location, these exact same people sitting on the bench, similar questions being asked, and where was Peter? Hiding outside next to a fire, denied Jesus three times, the third time to a young girl. That's where Peter was just a couple months earlier. Now Peter is standing in front of the high court, and he's standing there courageously. What was the difference then compared to now? Two things. One, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the second, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the difference. That's the difference. How do we stand on the strength of the nails? How do we be tough even when life is difficult? How do we deal with the difficulties of life? These two things. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do life without knowing those two things, believing in those two things and having them be true in our life. And that's where Peter was. He said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel. Boy, this does not sound like the same guy that was hiding next to the fire, does it? He's standing here with strength and conviction. He said, don't worry about how or what you are going to speak. I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus, when he spoke to Peter, told them when the Holy Spirit was going to come, not to worry about what they are going to say or speak. When you're taken in front of the rulers, Jesus prepares him for this moment. He says, for it will be given to you at that hour what to say. For the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, will give you the words. Jesus prophesied this exact event that we're about to hear that's happening. Then Peter said, filled with the Holy Spirit, rulers and elders of the people, and listen to the absurdity. He is about to mock the people that have the power to kill him. And that's what's about to happen. You see, he's telling them that 
we're being accused of doing something good. The reason why they were arrested, it says in Acts 3, is because they healed a man that was lame. A guy that couldn't walk. It says for 40 years, he couldn't walk. So probably at some point, like maybe Peter in his life was going to church with his parents, and he had actually put some alms. He had put some coin to take care of this man. Everybody knew this guy. For 40 years, he sat outside the entrance of the temple where he would beg for a living. Now he can walk. And by the way, he's standing with them. It says in scripture, he's in the crowd that's brought inside. This guy that couldn't walk. So they're trying to question the miracle and they've got one big issue. There's a guy standing in the crowd who we know couldn't stand for 40 years. So what do we do with this? He says, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. And this, this is like, I hope you understand what this is doing right here. Then know this, you, I mean, he's pointing the finger, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, bold. He knows that if he doesn't say God, that he could be stoned or perhaps be crucified. And he stands there and says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and then he ups it, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now, I can't prove this, but I'm just going to guess and kind of read between the lines that in this moment, because Jesus had said that I will speak through you, that in this moment, that Caiaphas is thinking, this sounds really familiar. I feel like I've heard this voice before. I felt like I questioned this same voice. And Jesus spoke with this same conviction that I'm hearing in this moment. And they listened to Peter and perhaps they were feeling a little convicted of what is happening. A little deja vu moment happening with the conviction of God that's coming in. You see, they didn't know what to do with Jesus. When he came and overturned the tables, even though Caiaphas was the high priest, we know that his dad was the one that was still in charge of the finances of the temple. It hit their pocketbook. It hit their financial institution. And then when they had the resurrection of Lazarus, that's what led up to their desire to arrest and crucify Christ. But look at how deep their unbelief can go. Verse 11, he says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Now, that's an entire sermon right there. Give me two minutes. Psalm 118, which they all knew is what he was referring to at this moment. Read it later today. Psalm 118 spoke of this, and the Jewish people wrote an entire story off of Psalm 118 about a quarry that was building the perfect stones for a temple. It was so perfect, mortar wasn't even needed. It was so perfect, the stones that were being cut, you couldn't even put a knife in between them because they were so perfectly cut. And they were sending all the stones from the quarry so that they could go and be placed at the temple. But they get this one stone, and it's not shaped like any of the other stones. 
and they don't know what to do with it. So it actually says in the Jewish story, they take it from the edge of the temple and they push it over the cliff and it rolls down the Kidron Valley, Kidron Valley right to where the um, Garden of Gethsemane would later be planted. And it says they push it down. That's the story that they all knew. And so when he says this, that you rejected it, he's referring to the story. And the way the story finishes is that they're trying to build the temple. And they go down the quarry and said, you've sent us every piece that we need. Every piece that we need. But we never got the last one. We never got the cornerstone. And the person in charge of the quarry tells the builder of the temple, oh, I gave it to you. And it was perfect. But you rejected it. And you pushed it down the valley. He's telling them in this moment, the story that we've heard from Psalm 118, it's become true. You were given the perfect cornerstone to not just bring a new religion, but to complete our faith, to complete the faith that was given to us by Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and was written by Moses. It was perfect and it was given to you and you arrested it in the Kidron Valley. And you crucified it. And it was perfect. And it was designed just for you. That's the message that he's sharing with them in this moment. Verse 12. He continues. If you haven't been offended yet, this still offends people today. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. You see, today, some people consider that verse hate speech. Because we make the declaration, there's no other way to be saved from our sin. There's no other way to find relationship with God. There's no other way to achieve eternal life in relationship with God than under the name of God of Jesus Christ. You see, in this moment, he realized the fullness of what God has done, the entire gospel, in what, four or five verses? Right there. It says in verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note. And they took note, these were fishermen. These were young people. These were probably people around Jesus' age, and he was 30. These were young people, especially in their system when it comes to religious leaders. They had not been to rabbinic school. They probably couldn't even read, at least not most of them. These were ordinary people, and they were speaking of an eloquence and a fullness of the gospel because of the Holy Spirit. And if you ever want to know in life, how can we have that? How can I have that in my life? The verse tells us, right? And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Have you met people like that? That just the way that you see them handle themselves in life, and you say, I bet they've been with Jesus. I bet they know Jesus. The way that they love other people, the way that they turn the other cheek, the way that they conduct themselves, I bet they've been with Jesus. And it all starts here. They could tell that they had been with Jesus. And that's the secret. 
You can tell a person who has been hanging around with Jesus. That's the strength that we can hold on to. Now what's so beautiful is where we stand today that we literally can have it all. Back then, people in the early Christian church, many of them believed in Jesus and they received salvation and they had the Holy Spirit, but they couldn't even get a scrap of a letter that was written by Paul. But today, many people, they have access to the Bible anywhere and everywhere, but yet they don't have a relationship with Jesus and they don't have the Holy Spirit but we have the opportunity to truly stand on the nails of Christ, to know his truth and apply it to our lives. We can have it all. We can stand on this. It says in verse 14, but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. He was standing there right with them. They couldn't question it. He was standing there, the guy who wasn't supposed to be able to walk was walking. I've got another story for you of the saints that we stand on. In February of 1948 in Romania, the Soviet Council rounded up all the church leaders and they were forced to give speeches in front of the whole city in the capital city of Romania, denouncing God and pledging their loyalty to the communist government. One pastor by the name of Richard Warmbrand and his wife they watched as pastor after pastor walked up, denounced their faith, and pled their allegiance to the communist government with people with machine guns standing right behind them. As it became close to being his turn, his wife stood next to him and said, how shameful this was. You must stand boldly in the name of Christ and erase this shame from our town. He said, if I were to do so, I may be killed. She goes, I'd rather be a widow for a person following Christ than to be with a husband who didn't. And he goes up, and there's a microphone. He stands there, and he follows the passages of Acts 4. He declares, there's no other name on whom we can be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. Shortly after, he's arrested. He's taken into what ends up being 14 years. He is physically tortured and beaten. Specifically, for, for a two-year period, every single day, he was hung upside down and a wooden stick was used to hit the bottom of his feet as hard as possible. And he basically was nearly lame for the rest of his life because of this. During this time, uh, his wife was arrested um, his son became an orphan, had to be cared for by others. He was told lies that your wife has given up the Christian faith and she has um, pled her allegiance to the Soviets, although she never did. And even though she was in a horrible work camp that many died, she continued to believe and profess her faith in Jesus Christ. For 14 years, he was in prison. For 14 years, he continued to share and love. His, his prisoner guard would every single day look in and see him on his knees praying. He would get so mad, he would open it, take him down, he would beat him again. At the end of two years, he goes, Richard, what are you praying for today? God is not going to let you out of this prison. He goes, I'm not praying for me, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God forgives you so that you can receive the salvation that I have received. 
And the prisoner began to relent on his treatment as his spirit was broken from hate and brought to Jesus. During this time, um, the political landscape began to shift. In 1954, um, he was sentenced to 20 additional years of hard labor. He became so sick and he was not able to work, they put him into a room um, that was designed for people to die. After a few days, they hadn't brought food, they haven't brought water, they just shut the door for a room full of those that were unable to work just to simply die. And all of a sudden, they heard something. It wasn't crying, it wasn't wailing. Can you guess what it was? Singing. They were singing hymns towards Jesus Christ. And they brought him out, they continued to torture, but they also continued to live. In 1962, through the work of Western governments, he was released to find his wife and son together, leading an underground church in Soviet-occupied areas that went beyond the borders of Romania. Almost every story, except for the one last week from Paul Carlson, I've taken from the ministry of Voice of the Martyrs. It's the ministry that Richard Warmbrand and his wife started upon his release. It's a ministry that I love to support today. Their, their website's persecution.com, an amazing ministry. Um, we're working on getting the shirts. The shirt designer for JJ's Printing had her baby early a couple weeks ago, and their whole line kind of got shut down. So I saw um, Jason at the uh, Gemini dance that I was DJing on Friday night for the sixth graders at Gemini. And uh, he said, hey, she's coming back to work this week. We're going to get it done. So we're making that happen. It's the ministry that we're going to give money to to help get Bibles into Ukrainians. You see, what is our once upon a time story going to look like? What is it going to look like for us? Are we going to have a story like Richard Warnbrand that says that we're willing to stand even when it's difficult? Even when it's difficult, we're going to stand for Christ. The reality is the religious atmosphere that we're able to survive in America today is still perhaps the safest opened anywhere in the world in nearly in the history of Christianity. But we also can recognize there's an increasing hostility, especially to preach that the only name of which we can be saved is Jesus Christ. But I can tell you it's not just what I'm reading. It's not just the stories that I've read from people like Richard Warmbrand. It's the life that I've lived. That if we want to find strength in our lives, there's no other name than Jesus Christ that can bring us that strength. If you're going through a difficult time, know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a fairy tale. It's not a once upon a time. It's an event in history that is recorded without doubt. We can stand on the truth of his resurrection, the proof that he was who he said that he was, and know that we can have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Even when my strength is lost, we can praise him. We're about to sing a song called Even When It Hurts. Even when I have no song, I'll praise you. The lyrics say, even when it's hard to find the words, louder when I'll sing your praise. Even when the fight seems lost, I'll praise you. Even when it hurts like hell, I'll praise you. 
even when it makes no sense. Louder than I will sing your praise. You see, I know this because I've experienced it. I wish that some of the moments I hadn't, but sometimes in the darker places, the brighter the light of God shines. What will our story be? I can't wait to see what God's got planned. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> God, as we pray this out, Lord, God, just join us in the verses of Psalm 19. They wrote, I'm hurt and in pain. Give me space for healing and mountain air. Let me shout God's name with a praising song. Let me tell his greatness in a prayer of thanks. For this is better than oxen on the altar. Because God, you came. You came as an innocent child. You lived a perfect life. And you came as the perfect sacrifice. Heavenly Father, thank you for the men and women who came before you. God, thank you for the men and women who have come after you to continue to share your story, who built your church through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, thank you for those who came before us, who purchased this land and built a small chapel that became a fellowship hall and a larger place so that more could gather in your place. God, we stand on the saints that have come before us, the men and women that ensured the faith was passed on from generation to generation. Thank you for the men and women all over this world who have paid their life to ensure that we had a text that we could read the Bible. God, thank you for the men and women who today suffer because they claimed to be followers of Jesus. And Heavenly Father, I pray that one day, someday, our story would be a story worth telling. That our version of Christianity would be worth living for. That our version of Christianity would be worth dying for. And that our culture would see in us something so attractive, so different, so startling, so compelling that they would lean in and that we would represent you well. So Heavenly Father, do with us what you want to do and give the courage to do what we heard today. I pray that we would be bold. I pray that we'd be confident. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who has doubt that they are living without all the aspects of God in their life. Maybe they have a Bible. Maybe they know Jesus. But God, maybe they've never declared that Jesus Christ is the name above all names who will forgive them for their sins to receive their salvation. And then they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If that's you, just simply cry out and say, God, forgive me. Because today I believe that you were resurrected from the dead to pay the price for my sins, and I commit my life to you. If so, today, the angels want to celebrate with you as you receive the gift of salvation and the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.